Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today my guest is former Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs. You may remember him as the nation's youngest mayor of a big city. He led Stockton when he was just 26 years old. He won national attention for helping Stockton start a universal basic income pilot program where 130 families in the city got 500 bucks a month to spend with no strings attached as a way to try and lift people out of poverty. Since then, UBI programs have expanded to other cities and even statewide in California. Tubbs has a new memoir out called The Deeper the Roots, a memoir of hope and home. For those unfamiliar with his story, Tubbs was born to a teenage mother in Stockton. When he was six, his father was sentenced to life in prison for robbery and other offenses. He writes about how he survived with the help of what he calls his three mothers, his mother, his grandmother, and his aunt. And even though he is no longer the mayor of Stockton, he's moving on to other projects. Next year, when he turns 32, Tubbs is going to launch a new program aimed at ending poverty in California. It's a lot to talk about, and here's our conversation with Michael Tubbs. Michael Tubbs from Palm Springs, California, to my home in Oakland. Welcome back to It's All Political. How are you doing? I'm good, brother. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, now, usually, you know how these things go. When someone comes on, a politician comes on to talk about their memoir, usually that means uh, they're running for something. But to to get this out of the way early, you are not running for anything, correct? I enjoyed my eight years in local politics, so I'm enjoying even more not being an elected office holder. So no plans to run for anything in the near future. Yeah. In fact, I, I, I understand that one of your staffers uh, suggests that you, that you write a memoir uh, when you were 26. And, and you were a very accomplished person, of course, by 26. But what was your reaction uh, then? You're like, well, and, and what, what's changed since? I was like, well, what are we going to write about? <laughs> but I, I think... The four years of being mayor at the time when Trump was president, at the type of the at the time of the height of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, reckoning around race, at the time of sort of rise of disinformation, COVID nineteen, it became really apparent that there's something really particular about being the first African American mayor, the youngest mayor of a major city in this country's history at that particular moment in time. And I also thought it'd be important to explain the choices I made in terms of basic income, in terms of reducing gun violence, came from a very personal place and sort of how those experiences growing up in Stockton really inform a worldview that speaks about dignity for all people and how I tried to govern that way. So over the course of being mayor, I thought, okay, there's actually something interesting here and something important to mark as a marker in time. Because a, a memoir is, is, is not a, a totality of one's experience. It's about a particular place, particular time. And I thought sort of the time from growing up in Stockton, but in particular the time of being an elected office holder during that particular time in this country's history was worth recording and sharing. Well, there's there's many poignant moments in the book. Uh, and I, I commend everyone to, to check it out. The Deeper the Roots is what it's called, of course. Um, and one of them I wanted to focus on is is what happened on October 18th, 2014. You were on the, you remember the city council then before the Stockton city council, before you became mayor and you and a buddy uh, went up to Sacramento and you celebrate the, a couple of things, opening of a new credit union in Stockton that you helped happen and word that a documentary about you called true son 
was going to be shown at the uh, prestigious Tribeca Film Festival. So, uh, and uh, went back home. Yeah, he had a couple pops. On the way back home, he got pulled over by the cops. And you wrote, here I was fulfilling the grim prophecy that I've been told growing up that I would end up arrested and in jail one day. How did, how did that moment and what happened after that sort of frame uh, your life? Yeah, that moment in particular is one I really struggled about whether I went to write about it um, in, in the no, middle. Um, but I'm glad I did, not because I'm proud of it, but because to your point, I learned so much. And what I really learned was sort of up until that point, I had put just a lot of pressure on myself to be perfect, even though I wasn't. And I realized that we all need grace at some times, that like we shouldn't make bad decisions. But when we do, we should also understand that people are more than the worst decisions they've ever made. Um, I learned a lot about accountability. I learned a lot about being truly sorry. I learned a lot about stewardship. And I think because so much influence and leadership I had earned so young, I didn't really appreciate what it meant to have the public's trust, what it meant to have people actually believe in me, what it meant to have people actually look up to me at, at such a young age. Um, so that was really, really a, a forcing function and forced me to grow up. And the other thing I, I recognize is that the power of second chances, like the fact that the community rallied around me and said, let's get you help, but let's make sure, but we still want you to lead, really gave me a heart and passion to afford that same opportunity for redemption, that same opportunity for doing better, that same opportunity to show um, you're sorry to other people. So it really helped sort of sharpen my focus on sort of accountability, but also second chances. That when people are truly sorry, and people truly own up to their mistakes and bad decisions, that we give them a chance to work on their redemption. You also talk, write a lot about in the book about uh, exceptionalism, uh, black exceptionalism. You have, uh, and you write, and this leads to, uh, we'll talk about in a minute, about um, uh, UBI, universal basic income and such, but you talk about every uh, person, every black person shouldn't have to be Michael Tubbs, uh, an, an exceptional uh, going to stand, getting a scholarship to Stanford, uh, et cetera, et cetera, being a, a white in the White House, uh, becoming mayor at a, at a very young age to succeed, to be to pull themselves out of poverty. How did your feelings about uh, your realization about exceptionalism change in, in those moments too? Yeah, well, I, I mean, growing up and to the credit of, of, of the folks who raised me, sort of the emphasis was on agency. The emphasis was on no matter if it's fair or not, work three times as hard, you can do it, you can do it, which is a part truth, right? Like I'm, I'm living true testament to that. But it just seems really foolish for us to base policy, to base our governance, <laughs> to base decision-making on that when there's all these collective things we do that make it so that it's um, very difficult for people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And I think sort of Exceptionalism, particularly as it applies to people who have, or groups who have disparate outcomes in this country, whether it's black people or Native Americans or poor people, et cetera, it just really does a disservice to the actual root cause of the problems, which isn't people's effort. It's literally policy. It's literally 400 years of a history. And I vowed, once I became educated, that I would use my story not to demonize other people in poverty, not to demonize other black folks, not to demonize other children of incarcerated parents, but really demonize a system that produces these outcomes where folks have to have to be quote unquote exceptional to be successful. And the other thing I would say, Joe, and what really drives me now is that we don't put that same expectation on everyone. 
I went to school with mm-hmm. brilliant people, but I also went to school with pretty mediocre average people who are still at Stanford, who are now millionaires and multimillionaires, or who are now inheriting billions of dollars of wealth. And that just, that just strikes me as incredibly unfair that we tell some kids, you have to work three times as hard. You have to um, save lunch money for test prep books. You have to be lucky enough to meet Oprah for you to kind of reach your potential. And some other kids, it's just like, you just have to be born to the right parents. You just have to look, have the right look. You just have to be the right gender or the right race. And that's what really drives me is that we don't expect all people to be exceptional. We have these structural barriers and then we're like, well, to make it, these groups of folks need to be exceptional, but other folks can be mediocre and be incredibly wealthy and still successful. And that just strikes me as fundamentally unjust and antithetical to the American dream or what America is supposed to be. There's there's a lot of great stuff in the book and I'm gonna let our listeners uh, explore that, but I wanna talk a little politics uh, now and then I would, we'll get into UBI and where it's going next. Uh, as I said, we haven't talked in person uh, since you lost the mayor's race in Stockton. Let's wrap up that chapter. I, I was, I got to say, I did not cover the race directly, and I was very surprised that you lost. Um, Everybody was surprised. Does... My opponent was surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Someone with a national profile. You lose this little-known Republican challenger by about a dozen points. Now, there was a, there was a, a big inform- misinformation campaign against you by a local blog out there, as you say. Um, but explain just a little bit about uh, how that happens and how much do you own of that? That, uh, you know, the, one of the raps was Michael's is, you know, he's worried about his national profile. He's worried about, uh, you know, these other programs and, you know, didn't do enough of the, of the, you know, meet and greet and mayor stuff that uh, you have to do back home. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a lazy take because I don't think there's any mayor in the history of Stockton who had more community support, more, I literally started community organizations. <laughs> literally, right, right. literally taught in schools. Literally, grew up there. Like coach, literally, like there's no one who had more of a tie with sort of the Stockton community that's been elected than I have. I think the difference is that the type, the part of the communities I had strong ties were weren't the golfers, weren't the country club type, and that was what people were saying is that I didn't spend enough time at the country club. Because one of the one of the to, to let people know, excuse me for interrupting, but the uh, one of the issues in the campaign was that you came out against a, a uh, transforming a local golf course, correct? Yeah, no, I part I I was a fiscal steward and I left Stockton and with the record reserves, a thirteen million dollar surplus and second most fiscally healthy city in the state, inherited it when it was bankrupt, but that was due to making tough choices, and one of the tough choices I led us through was to end the city's golf subsidy. Um, at the time, we couldn't afford libraries, we couldn't afford cops, but yet our golf subsidy was going up and the majority of people in the city don't golf. Um, nothing against golfers, God bless them, but it just wasn't a good use of taxpayer dollars. And the city had been talking about that since I was a high schooler and no one had the courage or the leadership ability, I guess, to get it done. And I resolved that we're gonna get this done because it just felt like it was in line with what we should be doing as a city. And that created a lot of backlash. Um, a lot of backlash from people. And I think it was that backlash that led the, that let the misinformation campaign begin to take root because it began to prey on people's suspicions. Like, does Michael Tubbs really like white people? Does Michael Tubbs like everyone? Does Michael Tubbs like the more affluent parts of the city? Or does he have a vendetta because he grew up poor? And that mm. crazy narrative really began to take root. And then it became tied to... He wants to sell the golf course to some Bay Area developer. And then it became, and then it just morphed into this, this crazy thing that had no bearing in reality. 
And that kind of snowballed and created enough suspicion. So then the other lies began to take root. And this was before the re-election campaign. This is my second year in office. Then it became uh, Michael Tubbs a crook. Michael Tubbs is stealing money from the city. Uh, Michael Tubbs is getting money, but it's only going to his family and friends. Or Michael Tubbs is doing things, but it's only for black people. And sadly, um, for a lot of people in the city, it, it resonated. Because again, I love Stockton, but Stockton's a news desert. There's no, the local newspaper has been decimated. Stockton is the least literate city in the country. Stockton has some of the poorest educational outcomes and is the second least um, college-educated community in the country, right? So it's a, it's a community with real challenges. And, be, and I mean, also, I was the youngest mayor ever and also the first black mayor. So with that comes all types of <laughs> feelings people may, may have about who should lead and what leadership should look like. So I think all those things create a, a toxic brew. And I think I take ownership of the fact that I saw what was happening, but I just thought truth, and reality and progress was enough. Well, let's talk about a, a legacy that you will likely have longer than your mayoralship, uh, and that's uh, your stewardship and championing of uh, universal basic income. You introduced this as a pilot program in Stockton back in 2017, been on the podcast uh, before talking <laughs> about it, the last time we talked about it. And now there are 20 mayors doing pilot programs, including in San Francisco and Oakland and LA. What have you learned from these pilot programs that you didn't know before? Um, the biggest thing I learned is that courage begets courage. And that oftentimes when you're the first, you take a lot of heat. But in doing so, you create the political environment that allows other people to lead with you. And the fact that we have 20 plus mayors doing pilots, but also 60 plus mayors who are signed up as part of Marriage for Guaranteed Income, the organization I started, makes me really proud. Um, the, the other thing I learned is that sort of ca cash doesn't solve all problems, but cash does solve, solve the problem of economic insecurity. And cash mm -hmm. makes solving the other problems a lot easier. Like when people are mm -hmm. stable and they're able to pay their bills, then you can talk about mental health. Then you can talk about sort of chemical dependency if that's an issue. Um, and I... And I didn't I recognize it in Stockton, but seeing it now play out time after time has been helpful. And then the last thing I, I realized is that sort of when we talk about guaranteed income, we're we're literally just talking about trusting people who who struggle with economic insecurity with money, just like we trust rich people with money, and allowing people not everything, but just a floor. And it's about what society do we want to live in. I don't see how we benefit from having a society where so many people lack and struggle, where we can afford to not have that. Like, it's just such a backwards choice to me. And I think these mayors are helping paint the narrative that, no, in, in America, we want to we be a, a country, the land of opportunity. But to do that, you have to provide opportunity. And a, po and a powerful way to provide opportunity is just an income floor so that no matter what, no one falls below a baseline level of dignity. We'll have more of our conversation with Michael Tubbs after this short break. And now, here's more of our conversation with Michael Tubbs. Earlier this year, California became the first state to fund uh, UBI uh, pilot programs. Uh, California has, has created this $35 million uh, pool to support uh, new, prod, new pilot programs or, or current ones. That, uh, and the priority is going to be on foster youth who recently left the foster care system and pregnant moms. 
what do you hope is learned from focusing on these populations and and what do you want to see at the uh, at the end of uh, this pilot, this um, this program that the state's created my end goal is i want to see a policy <laughs> i love this pilot i love the local experimentation i applaud the governor for putting being the first and only governor thus far to put money in the state budget to support these local pilots and I'm excited for the way the pilots are thinking about different populations that guaranteed income could, could, could serve. And I just want, I think we need a policy and we have to start somewhere. So if we start in the state of California with a guaranteed income for foster youth or a guaranteed income for pregnant people, that's a huge win. And I would be happy with that as we build to a guaranteed income for everyone who needs it, at least, if not a guaranteed income for everyone. Um, and then I, I hope to see our state really advocate the federal government and say, look what we're doing in California. It's working. People are more productive. People are healthier, um, et cetera. Um, so that's really my end goal. I just want to see a policy. And I think piloting and experimenting and getting the data gets us closer to that. How far down the road, realistically, do you think we are from creating a state policy here in California um, and then uh, federally? Well, you know you, me. You, you know how you know how low, you know how slow government works. But I know you're also a uh, you. You see the glass half full. Yeah, I'm an eternal optimist, and I have a lot yes. more time to make these optimistic dreams come true. <laughs> um, uh-huh. But no, look where we are, though. L- listen, when we first talked about this, it was just Stockton doing it, and now we have this child tax credit, which is essentially a guaranteed income for families with children. And I think if, if that gets passed and build back better for a year, and it becomes permanent. That's a huge win. And that's a, literally a guaranteed income for every family with a child in this country, making 150 for 90% of families. Huge win. If you had told me we would get that by 2022, I would say no way. So I, I think we're four to 10 years away from, 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 from a policy, if not sooner. And I say that because COVID-19 has illustrated that cash is also a powerful tool during an emergency, during a pandemic. It's, a, it's pandemic preparedness, it's contingency planning. And we know we live in a time of pandemics, particularly in California, where there's earthquakes, wildfires, et cetera. And we have to really think about how do we make sure that folks are have the economic resilience to be able to persist um, through those times. So I would say four to 10 years. Well, I'm, I'm going to work on this for four to 10 years. If we don't see much progress, I'm going to have to reevaluate, figure out what's the next thing. <laughs> but I do think okay. in four to 10 years, we'll have some policies on the book. Federal policies. Federal policy and something at the state level. Okay. Well, next year, you're going to be launching something called uh, a nonprofit called End Poverty in California, aka Epic. I see what you did there, uh, <laughs> which is which is aimed at ending poverty in California, which has the highest poverty rate in the country. Um, now, uh, Michael, in this state, you know, we have a Democratic supermajority exactly. in the legislature. We have all the statewide office holders, and including your friend, the governor. Um, why, what's it going to take to, to, to do this? And specifically, what is your organization going to be doing? Yeah, well, I, what you laid out is why I decided to not go into the White House, but to stay in California and do this. Because I realized that California has so many assets from sort of same party ruling both houses, the governorship, and most of the mayor seats and a lot of supervisor seats, sort of a, a, a population that's relatively progressive, and a problem, which is poverty, which I think flies in the face of our values. And if we can't solve poverty in California, I don't know how we're going to solve it in the nation, to be frank. Um, So what's going to take to do it? It's going to take political will. It's going to take political imagination. 
It's going to take political priorities. We have to say ending poverty is our North Star goal for the state. This is what we want to do. We don't, we can't have so, such affluence and then people can afford to live here. That's just not the kind of state we want to live in. That's not what has made California the golden state historically anyway. Um, and what the organization will do is a mixture of sort of inside-outside games. So sort of working with mayors and bureaucrats and other folks to figure out what's a policy agenda that significantly reduces the number of folks in the state who live in poverty. And that looks at housing, that looks at wages, that looks at union protections, that looks at education, that looks at investments like baby bonds, et cetera. Looks at promising approaches like job guarantees and things of that sort. Um, but then part of it's also a, a cultural play and really thinking about how do we talk about poverty in the state? What are the images we're using? What are we, what are we seeing on TV? How do we really educate the public that poverty is not because of bad choices people make? That poverty is structural and requires a structural response. So really leveraging California's assets from our artists and our cultural influencers to really get them on board with this is the North Star goal for the state. And then part of it will be sort of, I mean, it's scary. It's a big problem and we're going to have to think outside the box. So part of it will be supporting community groups and local officials who want to try different approaches, Republican and Democrats, in terms of, okay, how do we actually solve this problem? And providing the technical assistance, providing the support, providing the air cover so that folks are able to experiment and, and solve or, or some of the things. So we're going to launch in January, February with a white paper that is a research-based document about, okay, if we want to end poverty in California, these are the policies we would have to have in place. And then it's going to be a conversation with our lawmakers about, okay, can we do this? And if so, explain to the people why not. Why, why can't we end poverty in California? Why do we want to have poverty in California? And how much money is behind this and where's it coming from? Yes, all um, philanthropically funded. So it's about $4 million have been raised thus far from foundations, um, a donor advice fund, the California Community Foundation, sort of um, the Irvine Foundation, Start Small. And I think I'm missing one or two others. Okay. And would, I want to drill down a little bit more and hear more about the cultural part of this. Would you be, uh, I mean, creating media? Would you be uh, subsidizing artists? Well, how would how would that work? The strategy is still, still to be developed on that front, but part of it is sort of working with existing creators around sort of how they talk about poverty and how they illustrate poverty in their show and in their arts. Um, part of it will be some sort of public art and murals and things of that sort to really provide sort of co collision places or meeting places like we did in Stockton with the basic income murals where people stop, look at the art, and then have a discussion about what does it mean. Um, part of it will be sort of leveraging the power of social media and creating content that explains what poverty is, why it exists, what it looks like. Part of it will be sort of giving the tools of creating to folks actually living in poverty, which, again, in California, we have more people than anybody in the nation living in poverty. So part of it will be um, working with them on creating and illustrating and showing us sort of what 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 is it act, what what does poverty actually look like in the state because well, I think people will be surprised about what poverty looks like poverty looks like teachers in California mm. poverty looks like cops who can't afford housing in the areas they police poverty looks like um domestics and people taking care of our our, our older parents poverty looks like us. Like poverty has a face of California, and that face is not the face of another, but it's a face of our community. And I think once we realize that, that the poverty is the enemy and not our neighbor, then I think we'll begin to make the hard political choices. Well, I don't think they're hard political choices, but we'll be able to make the political choices about how do we allocate resources, how do you provide more affordable housing, 
How do you really just create a, a, a state where everyone could thrive and, and, and there's not as much lack or pervasive lack? John Kennedy famously said, I, you know, we want to be on the moon by the end of the decade. Do you have a goal for when you want to end poverty in California? I, again, but I work on different timelines than, than I think almost anyone. But <laughs> I, by tw- again, I'm giving myself 10 years to do all this really important wow. work and then reevaluate and see sort of what we have to show for it. So by 2030, if poverty is not ended in California, we should have made significant dents. We should no longer be leading the nation in poverty, and we should have a clear path for how we're significantly reducing the number of people in poverty in California so that we'll get to zero. Ten years. Ten years. Okay. Would, uh, you know, won't this take profound changes to our tax structure? I mean, you, you saw the, the results uh, last year with, when Californians showed that they didn't even want to change uh, Proposition 13, the, the commercial part, which polls said that, you know, that many people wanted to change. And not the part that even affected homeowners, which, you know, God forbid anybody touches that. Uh, what did that tell you? And what kind of profound tax changes do we need to 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 change here in California? Yeah, I, I'm not. I mean, I, I think that's a question for sort of actual current elected um, mm-hmm. policymakers. But I mean, there's a lot of ideas. There's discussions about things like data dividends, which are. Um, assets that aren't currently taxed. There's discussion about what to do with cannabis tax legalization, right? Like there's yes. so there's money there, but I think part of it is also looking at how our existing resources are spent. That there's already so much money that we're spending on the issue, and how do we make sure that money's actually getting to people? So how do we make it easier for folks to access benefits? Like what does a one-stop shop app or portal look like so a Californian can sign up easily? And know all the things they qualify for, which we know those programs help reduce poverty. So I don't think it's all even new things. I think a lot of it is sort of looking at the existing expenditures and ensuring that money is actually going directly to people in a way that's efficient, in a way that's helping us reach that goal. I want to talk about one more thing and, uh, because it's it's come up uh, it's around us all the time. Uh, that's from your book, and you, which is which is very much hope is, uh, focused on hope and, and your your story. Um, but it's also towards the end you talk about uh, rage and 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 it's certainly in the wake of the murders of George Floyd, and Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor. Uh, we just uh, you know we've had some and and of course um, <laughs> of course this happened after publication, but the uh, Kyle Rittenhouse verdict mm-hmm. recently. What do you want people to do with the feelings that they have about that? Yeah. Um, uh, about all those things. And, and and how did you process that? Yeah, well, first and foremost, I, I think we have to really understand that if you don't feel rage at injustice or at people being murdered, whether it's by cops or by neighbors or by vigilantes, something's wrong with you. Like, the, the, like rage should be the human impulse to such mm-hmm. um, gross injustices and such just gross regard for, for, for fellow human life. And, and so I think that rage is necessary, but not sufficient. And I think with that word rage, it goes one or two ways. Um, way number one, that rage can be used sort of internally and it can self-implode or create feelings of nihilism that nothing's going to get better, so nothing does matter. Or it can be focused externally on like, how do we solve this problem? Like, how do we how do we fix this so I have to feel this way again? And I think sort of for my entire life, I've just tried to find ways to channel my anger or, 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 or rage at injustice or things that aren't fair 
but in ways I find to be constructive, which are like how do we attack the system, the ideologies, the thought patterns, et cetera, that give rise to such conditions that, that, that upset me. And a question I often hear from my fellow white folks is, uh, what can I do to help? I asked uh, Alicia Garza this question, and uh, I asked her, how, how can white folks be good allies? And she corrected me, and you probably know this, instead of being an ally, she says, be a co-conspirator, because you have more on the line that way. What, what do you suggest? Yeah, I think sort of um, history is full of sort of white co-conspirators, from John Brown to um, Lloyd Garrison to sort of the folks on the Underground Railroad to like the, the folks, like the Freedom Riders and folks in the Civil Rights Movement, Robert Herschel, and, uh, like the, 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 the history is full of sort of white folks who have also been rightfully upset and enraged at injustice and, and, and thought that this is not the world I want to live in. And I think what we've seen, particularly in, in a political context in terms of voting data, the majority of white folks consistently vote for people like Donald Trump, people like the new governor of Virginia. And I think the question is why. So I think part of what's helpful is for white folks to have conversations with white people about, like, why are we okay with insurrectionists? Like, why... Why are we okay with demonizing people? Like, like, why are we okay with such pervasive racism in our society? And and really having those hard conversations with aunties and uncles and cousins and and partners. Um, Because I think that's incredibly important. And that's a conversation that white people can have with white people in a way that I can't, although I try. Um, and, and, and And I think part of it is also just from a very self-interested, selfish perspective, like, we are in this country together. Like, the majority of the next generation are children of color. Like, the majority of people whose taxes will fund your retirement are children of color. Like, for your own self-interest, you will want to live in a country that affords everyone opportunity so you can retire, so your pension is good, so you're able to enjoy sort of living in a, in a functioning multiracial democracy. Hmm. One last thing. I've gone this entire time without giving you any crap for moving from Northern California to L.A. I'll let you explain yourself now. Uh, And then um, what's next for you? Not running for office, um, but you have uh, you're wearing several hats these days. Tell us what's next and and explain your L.A. move uh, to those of us in Northern California. Well, look, I am a NorCal guy at heart (laughs) and California is a big state and I'm obsessed with ending poverty in California. So I thought part of it would be sort of living in another part of the state that I, I didn't go to school in, that I don't have, mm-hmm. um, I've never lived in. And, and I think LA is such a wonderful community. Um, it's so diverse. There's such a strong and particular black community that me and my wife always would be great to raise our children in a place like that. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and really happy with the decision. I'm still a NorCal Stockton boy at heart, but now I have love in SoCal, for SoCal too, which I think is important. Um, and what's next for me, I mean, I'm just going to continue doing the work I've been doing and, and really sort of pushing and, and fighting and, and doing what I can to get us to live up to our values as a state, as a nation, and really want to live in a place where we just afford everyone, not handouts, but at least everyone gets afforded the same level of basic dignity, right? When we see each other's humanity and, and we want to live in a, in a society that, that sees my son just as worthy as your son or just as worthy as your, or your listener's son and, and just treats us all the same. <laughs> <laughs>
and uh, and you were you seem happy uh, not being in office right now. This is this seems like a a good career move. Oh, incredibly happy. I I love being in office and did a lot of great things in office. Will put my record against anyone, and I'm loving not being in office because. I've never been wedded to a position. I've always been wedded to like this sense of purpose. And, and that's just how do we create more opportunity for everyone? And I get to do that whether I'm in office or out of office, which is special. The book is called The Deeper the Roots. Michael, good to talk to you again. I'm sure we'll be talking more as you, uh, you're going to be leading this epic organization, correct? Oh, yeah. As we'll be talking more about that. And uh, good luck with that. And thanks for being on It's All Political. Thank you. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Michael for returning to the podcast today. Thanks also to the King Webby Award winning producer, King Kaufman, for producing today's episode. We always throw some love out for our theme music. That song you're listening to is called Cattle Call, and it's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. See you next time on It's All Political.